You're listening to the N2K Space Network. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Welcome to T-Minus Deep Space from N2K Networks. I'm Maria Varmazis, host of the T-Minus Space Daily Podcast. Deep Space includes extended interviews and bonus content for a deeper look into some of the topics that we cover on our daily program. A common theme we keep hearing about in the space industry is that we have a workforce problem. It's not just attracting the right people to pursue careers in space, it's also retaining them that's becoming an issue. A source of the problem seems to be a disconnect between education and industry. Are we preparing students for the workforce? Well, we speak to space lawyer and president of the Association of Commercial Space Professionals, Bryce Kennedy, for his insights. Bryce, it is great to have you on the show again. Welcome back. It's been a little while since we last chatted. Oh, thank you so much, Maria. This is, I, I love the podcast, so it's always good to be back. So we're, we're talking about workforce development, always something that in, in the space industry, uh, is, is a, it's a huge need, and there are a lot of different approaches to this one. But as a law professional, I'm curious your thoughts uh, on, on workforce development, specifically, I, I guess, in the law field. Um, maybe we talk about a little bit to start when you were, did work as a law professor, uh, any some lessons that maybe you learned from that experience that we could take away from that? Um, yeah, so I was brought on as a, an adjunct for an experimental um, class, which was really cool, this last semester at Mexico Tech. And I taught grad uh, students in an engineering program, um, space law and policy, which I, I was surprised. I, wouldn't, I didn't think that I would get any, any bites on it. And we had a, a really substantial class. And one of the things that I was really surprised to see was that all of them were looking, not all of them, but, but a, a, I'd say a majority of them were looking to have a touch point in the space industry. And yet there, weren't, there wasn't a lot of knowledge about what the space industry was. It was very segmented or very siloed um, to what the school taught. So here in New Mexico, we have the, the national labs, Los Alamos, Sandia. Um, we also have Air Force Research Labs, and that's kind of where they, they look. And so when I started really teaching a broader skill set of um, what space law and policy was, 
It was to focus on how they as managers in their fields could start understanding a broader context so that they would be more effective. And and it was one of those things where I was like, I don't know if this is going to work. It was like water in a desert. I was amazed to see the response and the excitement of, of people wanting to really understand where they'd be working. And so that got me thinking on a couple of fronts is one, workforce development traditionally in space has been very, back to my word, siloed, um, whether it's in law, whether it's in engineering, you know, because traditionally, not all classified, but the commercial industry hasn't really existed that long. And so collaboration hasn't really been needed. And so we have these we have these industries where they just focus on you know we're working on their specific cog and then put it to the greater you know machine. Um, that doesn't work anymore, and it is failing quite rapidly. Um, and we're seeing that in a lot of things. The other thing that I'm seeing too, with especially in in the legal field, is that you don't have to be a lawyer to have especially for the regulatory framework, to participate and work with space companies. So a good example is export controls. Export controls touches everything in space. Uh, well, technically not in space, but everything that goes to space. Um, and you don't need to be a lawyer for that. And and we've seen a lot of law students come up to us and they're like, boy, I wish I had known that I could have studied export controls or telecom or government contracting and that I would have gotten uh, pretty much a job i don't say in any space company but pretty much any space company because they need those the, the these things and even beyond law students again you don't have to be a lawyer to do these things and so that's why we're starting to see a shift from traditional academic mindset of this these silo degrees that I, if i'm going to be a lawyer i need to do this or if i'm going to be an engineer i need to do this to a broadening perspective of um of collaboration and um you know, looking kind of outside your scope. Okay, so is it that the employers don't know that they don't necessarily need a lawyer, or is it a bit of gatekeeping in a in a way? I think that's a really good question. I think I think it's both. I think it's an old mentality. If I go back to the engineers, like all they job security, who wouldn't want to work for a lab? Who wouldn't want to work for those outlets? You know, I mean, as an engineer, it's job security to the max. It's prestige. It's all of these things, but it's a limited number. And so, for example, I brought I brought on a, a VC um, from Space Fund, and she was like, she goes, "Look, we look when to invest into startups. We look for engineers, a strong engineering team, so we know that at least the tech will be completed, you know, within a, a, a level of accuracy." And these students were like. Oh wait, we could go work for. Should we work for a startup? And and she goes, yes, you should be. You should start thinking immediately about working for a startup because a, she goes, you're still young enough that you could still eat ramen for the next two years, and b, you'll get more experience than you would at a lab, and be thrown into the fires and and have to grow faster than any other job out there, and then you can take that and work anywhere you want. And it's like, it's like these type of mindsets, they're just not, they're not translating the way that we're seeing it. And then back to your original question, the primes have always looked at, you know, are you a lawyer? Do you have this? Do you have that? Are you an and now we're seeing, especially in the startup world, where it's like, do you have these skills as opposed to do you have this degree? Yeah. 
I mean, it, a credential can sort of serve as almost like a, a guarantee, and I use a very, it's not, but I think the idea is that it's it's that check mark, right, of, okay, we hired this guy, and they've got this credential, and that means that we know that they hit this minimum criteria. But, I mean, if it is a matter of just the work experience can stand in, or even something like a certificate program, why does the barrier have to be as high as a degree? I mean, I love education. I love higher education. I'm the daughter of a physics professor. <laughs> like, I get it. But it's, it is it is a huge barrier to clear, especially now when we're talking about school debt in the United States. It's not a small thing at all. But it's also the time commitment on a lot of people's time. Like, do you need four years or more in higher ed when maybe a two-year or less of a certificate program can get you the professional? I'm preaching to the choir here, but um, I wonder, are, are companies set up to understand what they need or they're just going, we need a lawyer. <laughs> right. Uh, no, I don't think they are. I don't think they are. And then, you know, part of our organization at ACSP is like, we're, we have a huge arm of education and it's not just educating people on the training. It's educating people on exactly this as well. Like you don't need that. You know, one of the co-founders, Bailey, I, I think she's been on the podcast too. Um, you just space out where I originally started. The reason she held and really was the brainchild of ACSP um, started was like, she was tired of seeing commercial companies fail because they think they needed a lawyer. And while that is good for business as a law firm, her desire to see commerce succeed, companies succeed, people succeed outweighed, you know, the desire for, for kind of the bottom line of Aegis. And it was like, you don't need a lawyer for this. And we kind of went back to first principles. Okay, so what do you need? And it's like, you just need trained on these basic, on, on some really core things. And the funny thing is, is back to like higher ed, I was talking to, I won't name the college, a university, a very, 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 very prestigious, large university. They're like, we fail at actually providing real world experience that someone can go into an immediate job and, you know, be successful. And and that's that's where that's where we started these trainings because it's like we if if commerce is space commerce is gonna take off and, and everyone's gonna have access to it, we can't continue with just this higher ed positioning. We'll be right back. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. 
Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it. this gets into like a meta discussion that I is a very, uh, for me, a dining room conversation that I have with my family a lot about, you know, the the what classical education is meant for in terms of making like a well-rounded, interesting human with a lot of different varied interests. And like, that's great. But sometimes you also need practical training. So, um, you know, getting a classical education is wonderful for making you an interesting person, may not actually train you for the job that you need. Flip side, we've got this great practical need for a lot of jobs that need to be spun up quickly. And, uh, you know, for sen- you know, for shunting people to programs where they'll read the Iliad, wonderful, highly recommend, but is that going to help <laughs> right. them? You know, is that going to help them? <laughs> and I get it. Like, I've read the Iliad. I love it. But still, like, it's not necessarily you, what you we need. Give me the, the cliff notes on that because I have not yet. Um, it's like, it's fine. Go read it on Wikipedia. You get the okay, answer. good. Yeah. Who wins? <laughs> um the thing, too, is that we're seeing, uh, especially with the workforce, is that pe- a lot of people just don't have the time to do this anymore. I was lucky. I kind of fell into that. You're right. That four years position of being kind of where I am in society of I could take four years. I could just drink my face off. I could play around with all these other things. But, man, a lot of people, you know, a lot of the students that I saw uh, where I taught they were the first generation to go to school and they're first generation engineers. And so there is no, no room for play there. This, this is like on multiple levels, they're going to be supporting their families. They're going to be supported. They're going to be breaking the mold for the first time ever. And so that's why this class touched me so deeply because higher ed was not a, a luxury. It, it is a necessity. And yeah. And so anyway, yeah, that's one of the big things I see. Yeah. No. And, and often those first generation students, I'm married to one. I, I so I, I, I know this one very intimately. Uh, it's when you're a first generation student, often that is where that huge leap can happen in terms of outcomes, uh, in terms of lifting up your entire family. But you're also because of that responsibility, you're much more risk averse. I feel like I'm preaching now, but but those those students are not always going to be able to be like taking the riskier potentially uh, jobs at a startup where they know that there's a good chance of failure because they need kind of a guarantee, especially if there's debt involved, right? So then it, it, it makes it so people can't take those jobs or maybe they'd want to because the project is really interesting, but they kind of need to get the money and they need the security. And then we, then we still kind of have a perpetuation of the problem. I feel like I'm really preaching to the choir. I'm so sorry, Bryce. No, 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 <laughs> like, no, 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 you're right. But, but the, other thing, the other thing too is I don't, I don't, I think people don't have a good blueprint. And this is the other thing we're really working on is like, okay, say you do have the startup. Yes, and say it fails. But the skills that you have if in those two years are so transferable that you, you can go anywhere. And again, that's not taught either. It's like, yes, yes, if we're just looking at it from a monetary perspective, but if you can hold out another two years and really, you know, do, do something incredible at a startup, regardless of any kind of exit strategy, then you'll be able to go for the most part, anywhere else you'd want to. But again, that's not taught either. So it's like, it's just multiple perspectives of kind of this old mindset. It's confronting the reality of now, which is things are moving very quickly in a lot of different directions. And our, our sort of educational infrastructure is not as set up for that as as we need. So, okay, solutions. We talked about the problems, solutions here. So I floated, I mean, I, I obviously uh, your organization, I think would be a big part of this as well. But I'm curious your thoughts on on potential solutions here. 
So we're gonna I'm gonna be going back to to my university to talk about more of this. They're they're going to have um, to to see if this this class worked to see if this is something the students want. But a, a solution that I'm going to propose is that oh, I don't want it. let's come up with a, a fake percentage, but say fifty percent fifty percent of to me class or at least the, the degree should be about getting a job. Like I don't understand how that is not just baked into the higher ed. Um, but it doesn't make sense to me. Like when I was bringing in these speakers. I encourage my students to network them, to create, to find them on LinkedIn, to reach out to them, to ask them questions. And like, oh, that's normal. Can we do that? I was like, you better be doing this. This is the reason I brought these these speakers on, you know, because um, so anyway, I've seen it in every degree that I've had where that level of job outreach or career, you know, even beyond career fairs, but networking doesn't come, if at all, until the last semester last month, last whatever. And to me, the the low-hanging fruit is like, start this early. Start this as a sophomore if you're an undergrad. Start this in your second year if you're grad. You know, for law school, started immediately with clerkships and internships. This should be, I think, one of the main pushes from from administration to get to get these students jobs immediately. And teach them those soft skills like what you just mentioned about networking. Because unless you have parents or adult mentors who teach you that, that's that's not necessarily intuitive unless you've got like the gift of the gab, so to speak. I didn't know that I was supposed to do that kind of stuff until someone, as you did, just said, yeah, that's what you're supposed to do. How would you know? Um, so, yeah, especially if you're like, I don't want to bother them. You know, I'm just a student and, you know, they're, yeah. But And that's the thing. And so that to me is an easy, 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 easy solution. So then the other solution too is this thing called uh, new caller. I don't, I'm not well-versed with it. So I don't want to pretend like I'm an expert, but I've, I've read a few articles. I've talked to a few people who have set it up, but essentially it's like, instead of the white collar, instead of the blue collar, there's a great Harvard uh, paper about it too. Um, article about it. Googling that right now. I've never heard that before. That's cool. Oh, I, I love the idea, but essentially it's, it's not going with traditional degrees. It's not going with traditional um, roles as like I said, blue collar or white collar. It is, it is a, um, a skills-based you know, application into the workforce based based on your knowledge of a particular skill. And and that that to me is a really, really good. So it, goes, it points back to your thing about certifications. Yeah, if you get certified in this thing, but you don't have the four-year, the two-year, the three-year degree, but you are certified as this, this, this is kind of the new caller wave. And to me, that is very, very valuable. Yeah, and I could see that also for um, people making a career change. Maybe not even people fresh out of school, but people are going, I want to move into this industry. Do they have to go back to school for four years to get a brand new degree or can they just get certified and have that lateral move happen? 100%. You know, one of the things, the travesties I saw was one of my buddies from the master's program I took, he's in sales and he he's, he's done a massive, massive, massive multi-million, multi-million dollar companies in biotech. And he was a sales guy and a biz dev guy. Brilliant. Yeah, his track record was amazing. Tries to go into space. The space companies were like, but you don't have any experience in space. He's like, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, a, a you don't think it could be applicable at all? Yeah, I can figure out how a satellite works and how to sell that. But that transition was just, it's just, it's not there. Like people don't understand that the skill set can transition perfectly to a different industry. Yeah, it feels also like a cultural thing. Like uh, a lot of the sort of mythology, 
and I'm using that word sort of purposely in this case, mythology around careers in space traditionally, oh, you feel free to use it. <laughs> it's been like, you know, ever since I was a little boy, usually, uh, a little boy, I wanted to be uh, work in space. And it's like, well, I mean, not everybody knew that that was an option. Not everybody had that capability, or maybe not everyone was interested. And some people changed their mind. And I feel like that's changing. Uh, but the mythology is very baked in right now where it's like it's what you always wanted to do. So why would you ever have done something else? <laughs> so That's a very good, yeah, that's a yeah. very good point. You're right. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate oh, yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I guess it's kind of because it's a little bit my story. I mean, I was interested in, uh, you know, space and astronomy. I'm a Trekkie. I'm a geek. But um, I never, ever ever thought of like trying to work in the space industry because it just was like, no, I don't think I could. If I went back in time, maybe 20 years, it'd be a different story, but it just was never something I thought I could do. So I went, I went into tech and cybersecurity instead because that was more of a path for me. So, um, yeah, but that's just my, that's just my story. So. No, 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 no. Uh, but yeah. it, it, it's, it's a shame because you're right. A lot, and a lot of people still think that way. That, that's the other thing. Oh, my God. Just opening up. I love this story of whether it's real or not when JFK was walking the, the grounds of NASA. And he, he goes up to a, a janitor and, and he goes, what do you do here? And he goes, I'm helping put a man on the moon. And, you know, and that that type of just recognition, again, whether it's real or not, um, is super important. Just just so you know, it's like, yeah, I'm a janitor, but I'm also helping put a man on the yeah, I, I I use the word mythology very purposely because to me these are like our modern hero stories. We're getting into some really cool territory on this this episode, yeah. <laughs> by the way. But, like, like, uh, but yeah, it's like the stories that we tell ourselves they perpetuate also who comes into the space, the space space. <laughs> to some degree, some things are also cultural. So if we change the narrative a little bit, then it opens things up to people who didn't think things were possible for them. Well, l- let me tell you one last story of this time. I I brought on. A, a speaker who I'm hoping is going to be our board member. Um, and she is, she was head of NASA procurement. I, I forget the, all, her title. It's, it's one of these. And she's also, she emigrated into the U.S. So she had a very difficult, well, I don't want to say difficult, but she, being a woman, I think in the 80s in NASA, then I think she went, I'm going to butcher her resume, but to Boeing and then FAA, she just kept excelling. And being that my students are two-thirds women, I really wanted someone that, A, was not typical, you know, white American bread, and then B, female, and then C, had crushed it. And I got so many emails after that speaker of basically it blew my, their mind that they could also do that, especially with someone who had faced those type of hurdles and achieved so much. And just that, just that tiny little touch point, just to, just to opening that tiny little door was so impactful that I, I didn't even expect that type of thing so that they could see themselves in those shoes. Representation matters as much as that is almost a cliche thing to say. It really, really does. Um, it does. Uh, so that I'm, I'm glad you did that because, um, had a little Maria seen that in college, that might have changed her projector, trajectory too. So I know. I know. <laughs> no, no, okay. I'm happy with mine. I'm just saying, like, okay, it's good, just, good, it, good, it good, is good, amazing. Good, you know, yeah. I'm, no regrets here. I'm, I'm good with my very meandering path. But it's just like, listen, there's, there's always new people coming up through things, and, and people who might want to make a shift mid career. I mean, all these things are valid. Um, and letting people know that, like, it doesn't have to be you go on the path from age five <laughs> and you just stay on it. Sometimes you can wander, and it's all good. Yeah. Can we have another conversation about the wandering path? Because I want to do that next time. 
I would love that because that's been the story of my life. The absolute story of my life, Bryce. I would happily, I'm gonna interview I would love you. to talk about that. I'm going to interview you. <laughs> We're going to do a role reversal. <laughs> I'm up for it. I'll okay, do good, it. Why not? Good. Next, okay, next, next, next month, I'm interviewing you and we're going to talk about that. Because <laughs> people, need to, see, people need to see the meandering path. I have failed so many times in my life and every single time I've learned and it's been, uh, failure is such a great teacher, but it's very humbling. Hurts as hell. Hurts like hell, but um, it is the best teacher. So, uh, yeah. I'll, I'll t- I've talked about it before. I'll happily tell you my story too. It's a no problem. Happy to do it. So anyway, Bryce, um, you're a joy to speak with as always. Awesome talking to you too. That's it for T-minus Deep Space for December 16th, 2023. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at space at n2k.com or submit the survey in the show notes. Your feedback ensures that we deliver the information that keeps you a step ahead in the rapidly changing space industry. This episode was produced by Alice Carruth, mixing by Elliot Peltzman and Trey Hester, with original music and sound design by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive producer is Jen Iben. Our VP is Brandon Karp. And I'm Maria Varmazes. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.